Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, the podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are starting a new book and in a bit of a departure from some of the previous things, this is going to be a book about the history of the Russian Revolution. As many of our readings have taken pains to point out, theory that is purely in the abstract is not much use and we do need to know about the material conditions of places and people. And so I'm hoping this will give a bit of insight into things that often get gestured at in these books where they do regularly refer to real-world events and groups, and I don't always know what they're talking about. I am reading Russia in Revolution and Empire in Crisis 1890-1928 by S.A. Smith. And I'm going to start with the introduction to Grandus. There are also some maps included in the book as diagrams, and I'll post those in the show notes so that they exist for reference. So with that, let's get started. Introduction. Quote, The revolution was a grand thing, continued Monsieur Pierre, betraying, by this desperate and provocative proposition, his extreme youth. What? Revolution and regicide a grand thing? I am not speaking of regicide, I am speaking about ideas. Yes, ideas of robbery, murder, and regicide. Again, interjected an ironical voice. Those were extremes, no doubt, but they are not what is most important. What is important are the rights of man, emancipation from prejudices, and equality of citizenship. End quote. Tolstoy, from War and Peace. As Tolstoy wonderfully captures in the opening scene of his masterpiece, War and Peace, the historical significance of the French Revolution was bitterly contested throughout the 19th century, and indeed for most of the 20th. In 1978, the French historian François Forêt boldly declared that the French Revolution is over, a judgment which is questionable but which made the point that a historical event that once excited lethal passion had ceased to divide contemporary politics or be the object of deep psychological investments. It is doubtful that one can say the same of the Russian Revolution in its centenary anniversary year, even though the regime that it brought into existence has been defunct for more than a quarter of a century. The challenge that the Bolshevik seizure of power in October 1917 posed to global capitalism still reverberates, albeit faintly, and more pertinently, so does its challenge to the contemporary Western conception of politics as a field bounded by ideas of free markets, human rights, and democratic government. Furet observed that writing the history of the French Revolution was not like writing the history of the Frankish invasions of the 5th century. Quote, what the historian writes about the French Revolution is assigned a meaning and a label even before he starts working. The writing is taken as his opinion, a form of judgment that is not required when dealing with the Merovingians. As soon as the historian states that opinion, the matter is settled. He is labelled a royalist, a liberal, or a Jacobin. End quote. Footnote 1. Of course, there is no such thing as history writing that is devoid of political resonance. Historical interpretation always entails commitments, and history writing is itself part of history and so subject to constant revision. While few today would evaluate the Russian Revolution in the same spirit as Pierre Bezukhov evaluated the French Revolution in War and Peace, it is worth reminding ourselves that in 1945, Many would have defended the October Revolution in an analogous way, seeing it as giving rise to a state which, 
despite its faults, had made a massive contribution to the defeat of fascism. So Ferre is right to suggest that there are certain historical events and personages that evoke particular passion, where the writing of their history is a peculiarly political enterprise. And the Russian Revolution, 100 years on, is still such an event. Because of that, I have tried in this book to write as dispassionately as possible about the crisis of the Tsarist autocracy, the failure of parliamentary democracy in 1917, and about the Bolshevik rise to power. I have sought to avoid moralizing and to write with sympathy about those to whom I feel some aversion, and conversely to write critically of those to whom I am more positively disposed. But for the reader who would like to pin a label on me at the outset, and a reader certainly has the right to know where an author stands, I suggest they start with the conclusion. This book is written primarily for the reader coming new to the subject, although I hope that, as a synthesis of recent research by Russian and Western scholars, and as an attempt to question some familiar interpretations, it will have something of interest to say to my academic colleagues. The book offers a comprehensive account of the main events, developments, and personalities in the former Russian Empire from the late 19th century through to the onset of the first five-year plan and forced collectivization in 1928-29, when Stalin unleashed a revolution from above on the Soviet people. It seeks to answer the big questions that interest school students, undergraduates, and the general reader who enjoys learning about the past. Why did the Tsarist autocracy fail? Why did the attempt to establish parliamentary democracy after the February Revolution of 1917 also fail? How did a small, extreme socialist party manage to seize power and to sustain itself through a ferocious civil war, 1928-21? How did Stalin rise to power? Why did he unleash brutal collectivization and crash industrialization on the Soviet people at the end of the 1920s? At the most fundamental level, the book aims to offer some insight into the nature of power, how the determination to continue to rule in the old way can lead to the collapse of an entire social order, or how those seeking to create a better society become corrupted by their determination to hold on to power at any price. These are all hoary issues, but since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, a mass of new source material has become available that sheds much fresh light on the political and social history of this period. Over the past quarter of a century, historians in Russia and the West have begun to use this material to re-examine old questions, to raise new ones, and to rethink some entrenched categories. The book seeks to reflect this archivally-based scholarship and to give the general reader a sense of how scholarly understanding of the Russian Revolution has changed over recent decades. At the same time, it reflects the fact that the Russian Revolution continues to be a subject on which historians' interpretations differ greatly. Its main purpose, however, is to offer the general reader a wide-ranging account of the collapse of the Tsarist autocracy and the rise of a Bolshevik party, but one that pays more attention than was possible prior to 1991 to such matters as the imperial and national dimensions of the revolution to the complexity of forces involved in the civil war, to the attempts by moderate socialist and anarchist parties to resist the Bolshevik monopolization of power, 
to peasant and worker resistance to the Bolshevik regime, to the massive economic privation and suffering wrought by the revolution, to the conflict between church and state, and to the economic and social contradictions of the Soviet Union under the new economic policy of the 1920s. Revolutions are about the breakdown of states, the competition between rival contenders for power, and the ultimate reconstitution of a new state power. For that reason, the backbone of the narrative is political, and it ranges back to the time of the great reforms of Alexander II in the 1860s, and forward into the high Stalinism of the 1930s. The choice of a long-ish time frame is motivated by the fact that the book seeks to emphasize some important continuities across the revolutionary divide of 1917. Fundamentally, developments are analyzed in terms of the interplay between external pressures, geopolitics and rivalry within the international state system, and internal pressures that derive from the undermining of social hierarchies by rapid economic modernization. Revolutions are not created by revolutionaries, who at most help to erode legitimacy of the existing regime by suggesting that a better world is possible. So less attention is devoted to the political activities and arguments of revolutionaries prior to 1917 than in some standard histories. As Lenin himself well knew, it is only when the existing order is in deep crisis that revolutionaries can break out of political isolation and seek to mobilize popular forces to bring the old order to its knees. For virtually all the socialist revolutions of the 20th century, it was not a crisis of the capitalist system, but imperialist war that pushed old orders into crisis. So war figures large in my account. For shorthand, I've referred to Russia up to now, but the book follows recent research in looking at the revolution in a Eurasian perspective, paying much more attention to Central Asia, the Caucasus, Siberia, and the Far East than would have once been the case. Empire and the rise of nationalism are key themes of the recent historiography of the revolution that are integrated in this account. The history of the revolution is set squarely in the context of the disintegration and ultimate reintegration of empire. Fighting for their survival, the Bolsheviks lost control of most areas outside the Russian heartland between 1918 and 1920, including Ukraine, the Caucasus, the Baltic regions, and Central Asia. Eventually, by appealing to nationalism and anti-colonialism, they managed to put the empire back together again, with some exceptions. Poland, Finland, the Baltic littoral, the western parts of Ukraine and Belarusia, and Bessarabia. Although power in Russia was always highly centralized in the capitals, all the major events recounted in this text took place in St. Petersburg or in Moscow after the capital moved there in 1918. But recent research on the Russian provinces has brought out how the revolution was shaped by local ecological, socio-economic, and ethnic structures, and how conflicts in the countryside and provincial towns influenced its outcome. I have tried to give a sense of the diversity of the revolution by choosing examples from the remote provinces, in order to challenge an understanding of the revolution that is circumscribed by too great a concentration on the events in the capitals. 
Finally, since the 1970s, much of the most innovative work on the history of late imperial and revolutionary Russia has been done by social and, more recently, cultural historians, and this is incorporated into the present account. Revolutions aspire not only to create a new state, but also to overturn and transform social and economic relations. They differ from military coups or seizures of power by dictators and political cabals because the breakdown of state authority is total, and this breakdown opens up a space for mass mobilization. Politics, in other words, is taken out of the hands of the elites and functioning institutions and brought into the streets and into the fields. The activities and aspirations of peasants, workers, soldiers, non-Russian ethnic groups, women, and young people in toppling the old order and in seeking to make a new one are central to the story this book tells. Millions in 1905 and 1917 organized to oppose oppression and to achieve justice, equality, political rights, and an end to war. A history of revolution must, then, be a history of a whole society in turmoil. So while political events form the backbone of this account, it pays much attention to the economic, social, and cultural changes that shaped political developments, and to the ways in which different social groups were activated by and responded to those developments. The peasantry, the great majority of the population, is still too often marginalized in accounts of the revolution, yet they were its primary agents and victims. They suffered under Tsarism. They rose up against the old rural order in 1905 and 1917. They appeared to realize their age-old dream in 1917-18, only to find themselves bearing the main cost of socio-economic modernization. Yet, they also displayed a striking capacity to thwart the schemes of governments until Stalin unleashed violent collectivization at the end of the 1920s. A social historical perspective on the revolution sets a benchmark against which the actions of reformers and revolutionaries can be judged, allowing us to assess the extent to which they responded to pressing economic and social problems and the adequacy and effectiveness of their responses. Ultimately, it is only by looking at how far the social and economic order was transformed that we can measure the scale of the revolution which was highly uneven in its effects. Finally, in the past quarter of a century, there has been an efflorescence of cultural history, and this book seeks to incorporate some of its findings, showing the impact of economic change on ingrained cultural patterns. The critical importance of generational conflict within the revolution, and the efforts of the Bolsheviks to carry through what they called cultural revolution, as bastard children of the Enlightenment, they understood the revolution through the lens of civilizational progress, believing in the capacity of science to bring about freedom from scarcity, and in the capacity of rational forms of thought and social organization to liberate the backward masses from religion and superstition. The Bolshevik state was the first in history to seek to create an atheist society, and their assault on the church is a project about which we now know much more. The book, therefore, pays attention to the ways radical cultural innovation clashed with the inherited beliefs and dispositions of different groups of the population, especially in the sphere of religion. Paradoxically, the regime would consolidate itself only by compromising with 
and even appropriating beliefs and practices that it initially excoriated. The centenary of the two revolutions of 1917 occurs at a time when there is little sympathy for revolution in the advanced capitalist or even in the developing world. Talk of revolution has not entirely disappeared, but it is, in the words of Arno Mayer, quote, the celebration of essentially bloodless revolutions for human rights, private property, and market capitalism. End quote. Footnote 2. One might now add that even revolutions of this kind, the color revolutions in Ukraine, Eastern Europe, and the Caucasus, or the revolutions of the Arab Spring, have hardly been good copy for those who would affect radical political and social change through mass mobilization and violent means. This has affected the way that historians write about revolutions in the past. Footnote 3. In the West, historians are more likely to see 1917 as the initiation of a cycle of violence that led to the horrors of Stalinism than as a flawed attempt to create a better world. They are more likely to see the mobilization of peasants, soldiers, and workers as motivated by irrationality and aggression than by outrage at injustice or a yearning to be free. Looked at across the massive growth of capitalism that has taken place in the last hundred years, the October Revolution seems as though it led Russia up to a historical cul-de-sac. From capitalism to socialism, and back to capitalism again. Looked at from the vantage point of Vladimir Putin's Russia, it may seem as though the Russian Revolution barely made a dent on Russia's political culture. So why study the Russian Revolution a century on? First, because it offered by far the most radical challenge to the existing order up to that time, with the Bolsheviks committed to replacing what they saw as a society based on exploitation, inequality, and war with a classless and stateless society they called communism. If Bolshevik-style communism has little appeal in the 21st century, it is too early to conclude that its implications for the future are entirely exhausted. Just as the English Revolution put paid to the principle of divine right of kings and the French Revolution to the idea of an aristocracy of birth, the Russian Revolution's challenge to the idea that there is something natural or inevitable about social hierarchy and socio-economic inequality may yet prove to be its legacy. Capitalism may have seen off state socialism, but it has yet to adapt to that challenge. Secondly, Russia remains a considerable power today, and if we are to understand the combination of anxiety and ambition that motivates much Russian foreign policy, we need to know its history. The era of state socialism proved to be short if judged in a long-term historical perspective, but the impact of the Soviet Union on the turbulent history of the 20th century was immense, most obviously in respect of the Second World War and the Cold War. Finally, we can learn lessons from history, and there is a great deal to learn from the history of the Russian Revolution about how the thirst for power, the enthusiasm for violence, and contempt for law and ethics can corrupt projects that begin with the finest ideals. This is a book intended mainly for the general reader, so I have tried to keep endnotes to a minimum, signaling the sources of quotations and statistics, but otherwise lightly referencing the key texts on a particular theme. The endnotes mainly indicate the works on which I have relied and from which I have benefited, and indicate some of the more specialist literature to the interested reader. In referring to the domestic events, 
old style dates are used up to the 31st of January 1918, when the Bolsheviks introduced the Gregorian calendar. Dates then jumped forward 13 days to 14th of February 1918, bringing the Russian calendar into line with that of the modern world. However, international events are dated according to the Gregorian calendar, mainly in relation to the First World War. Most Russian names have been transliterated according to the revised Library of Congress system, except for well-known names such as Vita, Zinoviev, or Trotsky. All Russian measurements have been converted into metric units. And that's going to do it for this week's reading. A relatively short one, but that's because I think, generally speaking, this is pretty plain written. I think episodes are going to trend a little bit longer. Just a nice and tidy introduction for now, and then next week will be a chunk of chapter one. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts by all sorts of media, as well as go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping if you want to support them and get a ton of good bonus shows. That's all for this week. Thank you all for listening. Keep reading. <laughs>